Okay, continuing our study of Romans chapter 13 here on the listener's commentary, we broke the session in two just for the sake of time, but really we're going to pick up here in 13.8 through the end of the chapter, and it's directly tied to what he said before. In fact, he says in verse 7 of chapter 13 to render to everybody what's due to them, and verse 8 picks up with owe nothing to anyone. And so there's this idea of giving people what's their due. And here now in verse 8 and following, he's going to specifically say, and the only thing, the only outstanding debt you should ever have is the debt of love. That's going to be the point he makes here in verses 8 through 10. And in the broader context, this really is like a return to the topic that initiated the very discussion of how to treat our enemies and how to live in society. That topic is love. He started that topic in 12.9, stated it explicitly, uh, gave us the general command to have a, a genuine love for one another and describes that. Then he goes into dealing with our enemies and vengeance and all that at the end of chapter 12. Then he goes into the governing authorities. And now here he's returning to this topic of genuine Christian love. And the fact that Paul returns to the subject here, bookending, as it were, the subjects of enemies and government, indicates that his treatment of both those topics in some way are extensions of expressions of Christian love which helps us see how all-inclusive love is, agape is for Paul. And it also helps us see the way Paul reflects on love in order to apply it in our life in specific relationships and situations. Love really governs everything we do, including the way we even relate to the governing authorities. All right, so that's enough introduction. Let's jump in then to the details here of uh, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And again, this render to what is due to them, this obligation. You you have some things that are you owe to people, render it to them. But he says, owe nothing to anyone. So really don't be indebted to anyone except on one front, except to love one another. In other words, the outs, uh, love is the kind of thing that you could never totally pay off that debt. Uh, You could never totally be done loving to one another. That's really the idea here. And Paul ties this to the love your neighbor command from Leviticus 19 that Jesus made so famous as one of the two greatest commandments and that Paul regularly quotes throughout his letters. He says here, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And so uh, in just loving your neighbor, he says, you've actually fulfilled the law. Let's start with neighbor. What does he mean by neighbor? Well, the first thing to note is that in the first half of verse 8, he said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Well, that anyone should inform what he means by neighbor in the second half of verse 8. And so your neighbor can be anyone, right? Like, don't owe anyone anything except to love them. Uh, He who loves his neighbor. And so anyone helps us see how broad neighbor is. Not only that, I also think we should allow Jesus to be the one that defines the term neighbor for the sake of his apostles. And thus, how does Jesus do that? Well, the well-known story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 and following is actually Jesus' way of helping us understand how we should think about loving our neighbor. That was the question that initiated that story, right? The, uh, The scribe came and asked him, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to answer that. And once Jesus is done telling the story, Jesus actually asks the wrong question. 
Uh, he doesn't ask. So that's who your neighbor is or who is your neighbor in the story. What he asks is, who acted neighborly? Who seems to be the guy's neighbor? Um, and so what Jesus is getting at is not asking, who is my neighbor? So I can figure out who I have to love and who I don't have to love, which in Jesus' day was a very typical Jewish debate, who's my neighbor? Instead, what Jesus does is he forces us to ask, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean to love my neighbor? How does it, how do I act neighborly? And that then should show us how Paul here and the, the apostles elsewhere use this passage and understand the word neighbor. The goal is for us to be a neighbor by loving whoever we come in contact with, just like the Samaritan did in the story. And so our responsibility is to focus on the act of loving rather than on the object of our love. We don't try to figure out who deserves my love, who gets my love, who fits in the box of neighbor. Our job is just to act loving. And our responsibility then is to act in love everywhere we go and towards whoever we meet. And that's what Paul means when he says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, what does he mean by that second half of that statement, has fulfilled the law? And we need to think clearly about that. Two, two ideas that I just don't think really fit what, what Jesus and the apostles are getting at are these. The first one is, well, we still have to we still have to keep the commands of the Old Testament law, but we can only obey them rightly if we do so in a loving spirit. That doesn't seem to be what the apostles are getting at when you read everything they say about the law and about love. The second option that doesn't seem quite right is, well, the command for love replaces the Old Testament commands. Well, that's not quite right either because Paul actually quotes quite a few of the Old Testament uh, commands, the same instructions, the same moral law. So that doesn't seem quite right either. So what does he mean uh, by the one who loves fulfills the law? Well, Paul's point here and elsewhere, particularly in Galatians, seems to be this, that all of those commands, like the commands you see in the Old Testament law, all of these commands are, when it comes right down to it, expressions of love. That actually seems to be Jesus' very point when he talks about the two greatest commandments, like loving God and loving others as yourself, we are that the law is really hangs on that, Jesus says. Well, what he's getting at is you, those two categories, you could put all the commands of the law into. And I think Paul means the same thing here. So, uh, one way true love expresses itself, for example, is by not coveting. Or another way love expresses itself is by not committing adultery. Or another way would be by not stealing or murdering or lying, right? Like these are all actually expressions of love. And so uh, when we act lovingly towards whomever we meet, we're actually becoming the kind of person the law always dreamed of. We're becoming the kind of person that the law would applaud and say, yes, 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 that's what I want to be. And in this sense, love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the Torah. And so Paul goes on in verse 9 and says, for this, and he quotes some of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, some of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, he says, and if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes directly then the, the Old Testament passage from Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. And then he offers the summary statement in verse 10 where he says, 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Because the law was always trying to specify how you could do what's right by your neighbor. And since love does no wrong to a neighbor, love thus fulfills the law. And so what Paul seems to teach in his letters in total on love and the law is this, that a person who consistently acts in love that is informed by Scripture and empowered by the Spirit, that person will be the kind of person the Torah, the law, could be proud of. And that means that love is like deeper and stronger and richer, that biblical love has a backbone and has a mind. It's not just sentiment. It's not just being nice. It's not just, you know, kind of whatever feels good. It's actually informed by God's word and God's truth, and it's empowered by God's spirit, and it'll do the right thing for another person, even when it's difficult or challenging or hard. You know, in our culture, if I could just take a little aside for a second, in our culture, the overarching assumption is that love will, quote unquote, just happen, right? Like love will just happen. And so we don't give serious attention or serious consideration to how to develop love. But in scripture, love is a character trait. Love is a posture of the soul that always wills and as far as possible always does what is good for another person. You don't just get there by accident. That doesn't just happen. Uh, That takes a disciplined will. That takes some learning. That takes some insight. That takes some courage. That takes some strength. And so biblical love, agape love, Christian love is strong love. It's love with backbone and it's love with a mind that actually has discernment as to trying to figure out what is the best thing in this case for this person. And that means it's something that can be nurtured and cultivated and grown and developed and learned by practice. And the Bible routinely tells us that, teaches us that. In fact, in its very command to love one another, it's implying that love uh, is more than just a feeling, that there's a will behind it and there's a wisdom to it that we can learn and develop and cultivate. Now, in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 13, Paul then calls us to live this way because of what time it is. Let me clarify what he means by that. Let's read and we'll comment as we go. Paul says, do this, live this way, Uh, live in love, live as a good citizen, do this, live this way, knowing the time, for it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than we when we had first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, lay aside, and we'll come and get the rest of that in a second. What is he getting at with this? The day is almost here. The night is almost gone. It's time to wake up. What is he getting at? Well, what Paul is doing in these verses is, again, he's assuming that that in times framework, that overlap that we've talked about, where you have two ages that are overlapping, right? You have the old age, the present evil age that is dying away or passing away, and the age to come, which is broken into the here and now, and which is uh, going to come in full force and full flower, particularly when Jesus comes again. It's that overlap, that framework that Paul has in mind. And so the new day that he has in mind here in verses 11 
and the first half of verse 12. The new day is that new creation, the new order that is dawning in the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. And the night that he's talking about is the old era, the the present evil age, the, the old order or old age that's passing away. And so what he's using this imagery of night and day and even sunrise and all of that, what he's getting at is it's almost sunrise. The sun is on the way up. We're at that overlap between the, the, the day of darkness and the beginning of a new day. It's almost like sunrise. And this fact calls us. In fact, it requires us to live in a certain sort of way. And so he says, you should live a certain way because you know what time it is. We, as God's people, we actually know what time in history it is. We know it's the dawn of a whole new era, the era of the Messiah, the era of the Spirit, the era when God is making all things new. We know it's the era of a new creation. And so because of that, we're going to live differently. We're going to approach life differently because we know what time it is. So do this, he says, knowing what time it is. In fact, that word time is actually important. There's two different words for time in Greek, chronos, from which we get our word chronology, and kairos. And here we have the word kairos, which is more like a special moment in time. Like this is a big moment in history. So we have kairos here, not chronos, which is just mere chronology. Think of it like this. It's the idea of you know, a little kid running into mom and dad's bedroom and shaking the bed, wake up, wake up, wake up. Don't you know what time it is? And, you know, dad rolling over grumpily saying, yeah, it's only like six in the morning. Now go back to bed and let me get some sleep. And the little kid, no, in excitement saying, no, 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 it's Christmas morning. Wake up, wake up. Well, Christmas morning is a special morning. It's a special moment in time. And what Paul is saying by using kairos here, knowing what time it is, he's saying it's a special it's a special moment in history. It's a brand new day, right? Like a new era is dawning in the history of the world, the era of the Messiah. And so that's going to call us to live differently uh, than it did before. And so the night's almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, he says in the middle of verse 12, lay aside the deeds of darkness. And he's picturing now the idea of taking off your old clothes and putting on new clothes. Lay aside is really the picture of changing clothes. So lay aside the deeds of darkness. Take off those old dirty clothes that used to be the way you lived, right? When you were dark people, that's not who you are anymore. And put on the armor of light because the day is coming. And so put on the armor of light, perhaps uh, echoing even in Paul's mind is uh, something he'll write more fully about later in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, when he flushes out the whole idea of the armor of God. Maybe he already has that in mind. He talks about some of that in an earlier letter in 1 Thessalonians. And so we know he's thought along these lines. So the tools or the weapons of light, put those on. That's how you're going to live. You're light people, so you're going to put on the the behavior and the character of light. And you're going to get rid of the character of darkness because that's no longer who you are. Uh, he says in verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Let us now let us put on daytime activities, specifically the daytime activities of God, no longer in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And so he lists off some nighttime activities, right? He lists off some deeds of darkness, carousing, like wild partying and all of that drunkenness, uh, not in sexual promiscuity and sexual license, not in sensuality. Sensuality is living for what feels good, living for the senses. You're not going to live that way. 
That's the old age. That's the old order. And that's the nighttime. That's passing away. Not in strife. Strife has to do with, you know, constantly grinding your gears with other people and arguing and bickering with other people. We're not going to do that. That's not who we are as light people. No, we put that aside. Not in jealousy. We get rid of that. Those aren't who we are. But we put on daytime activities. We behave. We organize and arrange and conduct our lives as daytime people. Verse 14 kind of summarizes all that, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what it looks like. The clothes we wear are the clothes of Jesus himself. The character we possess is the character of Jesus himself. And so our aim, our ambition as followers of Jesus is to put on his character and to put on his mission. When we are mature in Christ, those two things are substantially like Jesus. The character of our life and the mission of our life are substantially like Jesus. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Make, make no provision to follow in human way of doing life, follow in human culture. Give no opportunity to it. Give no base camp to the flesh in regards to its desires, its aims, its agendas, and its ambitions. Nope. We're not going to give any space in our day, any space in our week, any space in our mind, any space in our heart for that. We're going to put on Jesus himself. We're going to wear Jesus proudly. We're going to put on his character. We're going to put on his mission because we're light people.